going to be slowly working through Romans, so if you lost your little Romans Bible with the notes, go find it. You've got a couple weeks to find that, um, and uh, we'll continue right where we left off. We'll do one, one week of a recap in Romans, and then we're just going to jump, jump right back into it. Uh, there's a couple, um, when I was studying this passage this week, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 17, 20 through 37, and, and looking at this idea that Jesus is telling these these stories, a lot of them so far have been these parables. Uh, today is not a parable, but it's, it's a story, we, and he's telling stories, and, and we might be familiar with it, but is, is there something deeper that's going on here? Not that we have some like, secret mystery that we've solved, and, and we, we've got all the answers. That's not it at all. But I think that if we just read it over, and we don't look at the deeper meaning behind the story, we, we miss a, a lot. Um, and so that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, some of the greatest movies uh, ever made uh, are, the, are the, to the Terminator, or the first two. I don't even, the newest, I haven't even bothered to watch the new ones. Um, yeah, there's something with the nostalgia of the old ones, but Terminator, and, the, and, the, and when Arnold Schwarzenegger right, says this line of, I'll be back, right? He just says this line, and he's gonna, he's gonna come back, and when he says that, you believe him, right? When, when, when the Terminator says, I'll be back, you're like, yeah, he's not coming back. You know what I mean? Like, no, you, you know this guy is going to come back. He's going he's gonna to be true to his word. Um, when I was a kid in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, this was, um, this, this was back when you had like TV, the dials. Some of you would remember this, not too many of us. Uh, and you had to turn the thing, but there was, there was these things that when they, you'd be watching a show and there'd be a commercial break. We, now we know ads and everything. We all get that. But there'd be these commercials, right? And it was this time where you'd, you'd get up and, you'd, and you would run, right, to go get a food or go to the bathroom and have to run back before your show came back on because you couldn't pause it, you couldn't rewind it, you, couldn't, you, had to, you had to watch it live. And they would always do this, not every show, but a lot of shows would kind of do this thing like, after these messages, we'll be right back. And it was, they would just do this little jingle and they'd have these weird cartoony things come out and be like, okay, it's time for a commercial. And you'd, and you'd go run and do your thing. Um, I told you a couple weeks ago, the comedian that I, I love, Nate Bergazzi, um, he, he has a bit on that, of, of the commercial thing. He was like, there was one time where, where there was a, um, it was a kickoff was happening, and he, he didn't go during the commercial, and so he went to, to go get a snack, and he had to, you know, he's like, I had to go around my coffee table, and I went and I got the snack, and I came and sat back down, and then a touchdown had already been scored. And he was like, within six seconds, someone ran a hundred yards and I couldn't even get around my coffee table to get a snack in time. I'll be right back, right? It's, it's a phrase that we say it a lot. We use it a lot. It's in TV, it's in movies. It's this phrase and, and, and there is gonna be a connection here uh, to the sermon that I've titled, I'll be back. Because Jesus is gonna use very similar language in the same way, I know it's like maybe, it's weird maybe to think like, oh yeah, Jesus and the Terminator. When Jesus says, I'll be back, he means it. He's not messing around. He's not, he's not telling jokes. He's not goofing with us. He means it. I'll be back. We're gonna be looking at Luke chapter 17, 20 through 37. And I'm gonna read this passage and you're gonna go, I'm not seeing the connection. And you won't. <laughs> Hopefully I make that connection for us. This morning, let me read this passage, Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20. Uh, I'll be reading out of the NIV. It says, once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the, kingdom, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the, the kingdom of God is in your midst. 
Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming you will long to see the days of the Son of Man. That was, again, his favorite title for himself, for the Messiah. But you will not see it. People will tell you, there it is, or here he is. Do not go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but the day that Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is in the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one who is in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be uh, one, uh, one bed, and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together, and one will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked the disciples. And he replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. All right, let's get into this passage, not just another story. Now, again, for the last several weeks, we've been looking at a lot of different parables. Uh, and again, a parable was something that was going to be thrown alongside something else. Literally, that's what it means. It's just a, a parable. It's next to something else. And what is the thing that the parable is next to? It's usually always a story or something relating to the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God is like. But that's not going to happen in this passage. This is not a parable. There's not, it's not throwing next to something. This is quite literally Jesus answering the question, when is the kingdom of God going to come? Right? He's directly addressing this. He, he could have, like he has been for the last couple years of his life, gone into story, gone into parable, but he doesn't. He addresses this one head on in a little bit more clear fashion. But I want to explain this idea of what's called dual fulfillment. This is something that happens all the time throughout Scripture, specifically when it comes to prophecy. That usually, not everyone, but usually when there's a, a prophetic word that's said, it has a real, true fulfillment that happens at that moment for the person who's, who's writing it. Uh, some, some prophet, Elijah or Elisha or Isaiah, they say something that's true about this thing now in their time, but also in the future about Jesus or the Messiah. You have these messianic psalms that are prophetic only about the future for sure. There's no other Messiah. David's not writing about himself when he writes a messianic psalm. He's looking forward to the future Messiah. But there are some prophecies that happen. And when you read the New Testament, you see this happen all the time, right? It says, and, and thus it fulfilled the scripture or, or thus this prophecy was fulfilled. And you go back and you look at the prophecy and you're like, what in the world did that have to do with Jesus, right? Because there's this dual fulfillment. There's something that's happening there, then, and now, and also in the future. And so we're gonna see that uh, a, a lot in this passage this morning. And, and as I was uh, looking over this, it was just kind of, kind of the already not yet or this dual fulfillment of it happens now, but also in the future, it reminded me of these candies now and laters. Does anyone remember these things? I don't think they make them any, well, actually, this was a picture from Amazon. You could buy this uh, right now, I guess, if you wanted, but you don't, it's not as popular. Um, I remember as a child getting a, a filling of my tooth ripped out 
from, from one of these things. That might have been the last time I tried to eat one of these things because they are exactly what, how they're described. They are so hard and so chewy uh, that you eat them both now and you will be chewing it for a long time later. That's why they're called, right? Like someone accidentally probably made the candy, right? They're in the boardroom pitching, hey, what should we call it? And they're like, I have been chewing on this thing forever. Let's just call it a now and later, right? Uh, and, and it works. That's dual fulfillment, okay? That, that's what we're gonna see happen multiple times in this not just another story that Jesus is teaching, that something is happening here, now, in this moment when Jesus is there, present with them, but also there's going to be a future fulfillment. It's both now and later. So let's look at, we're going to look at a couple different questions and observations just walking through this text. First one is, where is the kingdom? Once being asked by the Pharisees, Again, just religious leaders of his day that usually were trying to, to trap Jesus, trying to, trying to figure something out, trying to make him look like the bad guy. And, and it doesn't say, it doesn't kind of give any, any motive behind the Pharisees. Maybe they were just genuinely um, asking this question of, you've been talking about this kingdom of God, you've been talking about it through stories and parables, now we're just gonna ask you point blank. On being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, which would have gone directly in the face of what the Jews at the time would have thought, right? They're looking for a physical land. They're looking for the promised land, even though they're in the promised land, they're under Roman occupation. It's not going to be something you can observe with your eyeballs. You're not going to just say like, oh, here's the kingdom. It's in this fence line, right? It's in this line on the map. It doesn't work that way, nor will people say, oh, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. I, I think this is a, a very good translation of this phrase, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Some of you, if, you, if, you, if you're looking and you have a different translation, it might just say, because the kingdom of God is in you, which is also a good translation, but I like the midst because it has a both now and later effect. It has a, a here and now, it has a both and effect that the kingdom of God, it's something that I know I've said many times, the kingdom of God is expanded, is advanced upon one soul at a time. It is a human being going from death to life. That is how the kingdom of God is expanded. It happens in you. It is a spiritual thing, but also I think by Jesus saying in your midst is also about himself, that I am ushering in this kingdom of God now by what I'm about to do on the cross, but also later when I return. That it's a both now and later, and by Jesus doing that, because we're gonna see it, I think, in the context here, right, the very next verse, he's gonna say the day of coming is when the Son of Man does something, and so I think he's talking about himself, that Jesus, I am in your midst, but also this is a spiritual reality that needs to take place in your soul, in your heart. So then, let's... I put the second coming question mark, like is this, is this about now? Is this about the future? Well, I think it's, I think it's both, which I think we'll, we'll see here in this passage. Then he said to his disciples, and I think this is where it's gonna be the later portion of the now and later. The time is coming when you will long to see the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you there it is or here he is. Do not go running after them, right? There it is, this, this person, this is the Messiah. He's gonna be the one that's gonna redeem Israel now, here, physically. Don't go running after them. Don't go chasing after them. It's not the Messiah. 
Then he says this, for the son of man in his day will be, take, will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other, right? In the twinkling of an eye, it's gonna be this boom, big flash, big bang, and that's gonna be it. There's no, there's no second guessing. Like, oh, was that, was that Jesus? I think I just saw a video recently over the 4th of July. Um, someone, crazy fireworks go off. These little kids were coming back home and, and they ring, you know, they had like a ring doorbell and they're trying to get in the house and then all of a sudden these huge fireworks go off and this little girl goes in this thick southern accent, Jesus just came back. <laughs> There's not gonna be any second guessing, right? No one's gonna be like, was it, was it Jesus? Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But we see this future aspect, the second coming when Jesus returns, but then you have the now, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. But we see this aspect that when Jesus dies on the cross, the, the immensity, the magnitude of the things that happen, that the sky is darkened, there are lightning flashes that happen, there's an earthquake that happens, that the, the centurion that's there at the cross that witnesses all these events says, surely this is the son of God. But there's no doubt about it. All the things physically that just happened, there's no way that this isn't actually the son of God. It's a wild story. And then we see both now and later in this time in this story that Jesus is the initiator of the kingdom of God. He initiates the kingdom of God not only with his physical body and presence and dying on the cross and physically when he returns, but also in our midst, in our heart, midst is a weird word. Can we just agree on that? Midst. In our hearts. And then he's gonna go on and he's gonna say, matter of fact, it's gonna be so instant, it's gonna be like Noah. It's gonna be so radical that it's gonna be like the days of Noah. And he says this, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Is there anything wrong with eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage? The answer is no. <laughs> right? the, the things that Jesus lists here are not the bad things that people were doing. Right? You, go, you can go back and read the, the, the account of Noah. The earth was so bad and humanity was, was so evil and so vile that God is like, I, I'm sorry I even created humans. This is, this is out of control. I need to wipe them off the face of the earth. But God spares a remnant in Noah and his family. And one of my biggest pet peeves, I'm sure, I'm sure, I've mentioned this at some point down the line, this stuff drives me bonkers. Like, right? It's like, this is not a happy day. This is not, look at all the animals that God sent. Right, this is, I mean, every nursery, has this painted on the wall, right? And literally, there's one here in this building that has this huge mural of happy animals on Noah's Ark, right? And I get it, I get it, I understand it, right? I understand you probably don't wanna paint a picture, you know, like this in a nursery, right? I, I, I understand that. But this is horrific. This is one of the most awful days in human humanity, in, in human history, 
the amount of death that happened. And so when Jesus is saying this, right, we can, you can read the story of Noah and the ark and you can read it in this moralistic way, right? Where I could say, hey, as a preacher, I'm like Noah, right? I'm the man of God. God's put me here. You need to listen to the words I say. You need to take heed to the words I'm saying. You need to listen. You need to repent. That's one way to do it in a moralistic way. Or another way we could look at this. How is Jesus like Noah? How is the kingdom of God like Noah? that people are going about their daily lives and they don't care. They don't care, they don't even know. They're, they're, they're completely unknowing that destruction is happening or coming and that Jesus is the ark. Jesus is the only way of salvation and just like Noah saying, anyone, like let's go and people don't. He's saying, that's what it's like. That's what it's like as the Messiah saying, salvation is here and people look at Jesus and hear Jesus and go, you're crazy. You're just like that old man Noah. He then also goes on and says, it's gonna be the same as it was with Lot. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Again, same thing, the, the, the description here of what's going on and, and specifically in Sodom and Gomorrah uh, if you're, not, if you're, you're new to the Bible, uh, not around the Bible at all, you've probably heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a phrase that we still use in popular culture uh, of that, uh, a phrase of, of, of sodomy or sodomites. It's, it's had this language for homosexuality. All these different things that are going on with that. That's usually what, what comes to mind, right? But Jesus says the days of now, of where I am as the son of man, and when I return, it's gonna be like the days of Lot, and we could go back and reread Genesis 18 and 19, and I, these are hard chapters to read. Um, the debauchery of humanity hits a level that is just unreal when you read these chapters, and I'm not gonna reread them and, and talk about it, but just a little bit of context that these, these cities are just wicked. And God says, I've heard the cries of the innocent and that something needs to be done about it. I'm gonna destroy these cities. And Abraham's like, whoa, my nephew Lot is there. You can't destroy these people. There's innocent, there's, there's righteous people. And so Abraham says, God, if there's 50 righteous people, will you spare these cities? And God's like, yeah, if there's 50, sure, I'll do that, but there's not. And they, and they go back and forth. What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10? And it gets down to 10. If there's 10 righteous people in all these cities, will you spare it? And God's like, yeah, sure. There's not. And he sends two of his angels in there and he, they grab Lot and his wife and his two daughters. They even try to, Lot tries to go and again, just telling everyone, he's warning people. He tells his, his sons-in-laws that are betrothed to his daughters, like, hey, the, the city's about to be destroyed by God. We gotta go. And it says they laugh at him because they think he's joking. And they leave and they're, they're running out. And so we, we have all this description of the debauchery of humanity. But what Jesus again brings up here is this buying and selling, planting and building. They're just going on about their business before the destruction. And again, this, uh, on Monday, we have our, our, our phone call uh, with, with just different communicators and, and different uh, staff at Hope just to help us with reading this text from a different lens. And, and uh, Pastor Davis from, from uh, our downtown location, he teaches a biblical theology class and he, he gave me this quote he said, when we teach this, we, we have to f flip how we read it, 
right? Because just like in looking at, at, the, at the Noah account, oh, is this just, hey, hey listen, listen to what I'm saying as a preacher. The, the wrong interpretation is be a righteous person so that God will save you, right? We, we can read that story and go, oh, if, if only me and my family would have been in those cities, then we, we would have been okay. God would have spared the city. We would have made it up to 10. Is that one way to do it? Or, or God hates homosexuals, right? That's, these are wrong interpretations of this passage. The gospel interpretation, looking forward to Jesus is this, that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has saved us from a greater fire. And that we've been led out from more evil cities. In one sense, we've been led out. In another sense, we're being led out now and later. True reality. And yet there's change that's continually happening. Don't turn away from Jesus. In this sense, it's an example, right? That the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is this example that we run to Jesus. He is our ark, he is our salvation, and yet we go about our daily lives not thinking twice. And again, I think what is easy to do when we hear stories like this is it's easy for us, again, to be the good guy in the story. To be like, well, I'm, I'm good. I know that I'm saved, I believe in Jesus, all that. And yet, in our daily lives, do we just go about as if nothing's different? We just carry on, carry on. Or does my faith in Christ change things? Jesus says the same thing will happen. It will be just like this. Eating and drinking, carry on with daily life, not giving a thought about the creator and on this day, the Son of Man is revealed. And again, <laughs> put yourself <clears throat> in the shoes of people listening to Noah. Hey, everyone, flood is coming. I'm gonna build a huge ark. You guys can get in here if you want, but you better do it now before it's too late. No, you're crazy. You're crazy. Hey, hey, Lot. Hey, sons-in-laws, you, you, better, you better get out now. God's gonna destroy it. What are you talking about? You're crazy. Listen, <laughs> one of the major tenets of the Christian faith is that we believe Jesus, who died and rose again from the dead, ascended somewhere in heaven, is in a body, and he's going to come back what? That's crazy. That is crazy. And yet when Jesus says, I'll be back, we better believe he meant it. Jesus says, on that day, no one who is in the housetop of the possessions inside should go down and get them. Likewise, no one who is in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. And so we're not gonna, again, not gonna read the story, but Lot, Lot's wife and Lot and his two daughters, as they're running out of the city with these two angels, Lot's wife just turns back, just wants to look back, and it says that she turned into a, a pillar of salt. Whatever that means. She lost her life, she was destroyed because she looked back. She wanted to know what was going on. Like, I, I don't want to lose this thing, this part of me that's so integral of, to my life and who I am. I can't lose this. She's destroyed. And I think the whole point, the crux of this whole thing is that whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life 
will preserve it. Jesus is saying here, there are no second chances. You don't get to get your things in order before death comes or before I return. There's no turning back. There's no looking back. That's it. This phrase, though, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it reminded me of John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist is, is prophesied about in Malachi. So that someone is going to come and he's going to pave the way. He's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. John knows this. He's his older cousin, just by a couple of months, John is. And John goes out. He's, he's building a mega church out in the wilderness, in the desert. This guy's building this mega church and he's baptizing people, uh, dunking them underwater, a baptism of repentance, the same way that we do thousands of years later of saying, no, there's an inward reality that there's a lamb of God who's gonna take away the sins of the world. And John the Baptist is building this huge following and all these disciples. And then he sees Jesus and he goes, that's the guy. That's the lamb who's gonna take away the sins of the world. Look at him, follow him. That's what's happening. It says, after this, Jesus and the disciples went out to the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. So now Jesus is baptizing. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. This idea of baptism, but the way that the Jews would have viewed it. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, Jesus, the one who you testified about, look, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him, right? Your congregation is all leaving. Your disciples, your followers are leaving you. You built this, you prepared it, and they're all going after Jesus. And to this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. Right? He uses this analogy of a wedding, that he is a groomsman, and that Jesus is the groom and the bride, the church, the people of God are the ones that he is going to embrace, not John. John's like, this is not my church, it's not my people. It's all about Jesus. And I, and I listen, I've have a, I have a attended a, a lot of weddings. I've officiated a lot of weddings. I've officiated a lot of your weddings of couples in this room. I can't think of a groomsman, even if he can't stand the bride, right? Who isn't just full of joy for his buddy. Right? I, this, my, my best friend up here is getting married to the woman of his dreams. And this is really exciting. I'm so happy for him. That's what John is saying. What do you, I can't be like, I can't, I'm not jealous. That's not how this works. I'm so happy for him. I'm full of joy. And John says, that joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. And the one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Father and I are one. And he's saying, no one's listening to him. Whoever has accepted it, the few people who do accept it, it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands Whoever believes the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, 
for God's wrath remains on them. It's the same thing. Don't don't look back. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus, and whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. Right? Again, that phrase, it's, it's, it's an oxymoron. Right? If I try to keep my life, I'm gonna lose it. If I try to lose my life, I'm gonna preserve my life. I'm gonna save my life. Jesus is saying there's this now and later principle that I now currently need to lose my life. I need to look to Jesus, the beginner and the under of my faith, the author and the finisher, so that later I can preserve it through faith in him. Moving on, the rapture? Question mark, what's going on here? Verse 34, Jesus says, I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together and one will be taken and the other left. Uh, You can see that in the NIV, there's that little 36, uh, verse 36 has been taken out of the text. Some of the older translations might have that in there. It's very similar. It's two men are in a field, one will be taken, one will be left. Um, That verse just wasn't in the oldest manuscripts. um, So they didn't think that was maybe part of the actual uh, original text. That's why that's there. doesn't matter. It's not integral at all to the story. However, these verses have created, at least since I was a kid, probably a billion dollar uh, industry. (laughs) There's these books, the Left Behind series and Tim LaHaye and all this idea that there was gonna be this secret rapture of the church, that the church was gonna be snatched up, grabbed, taken, right? That that, that Jesus, when he not actually returns, he's gonna do this kind of in-between thing where he's gonna gather his church and he's gonna leave behind people. And if, and if you grew up reading those books or watch the movies, uh, Kirk Cameron, right? You watch those movies, they're terif- they are terrifying, right? As a child, I remember like just going into a room and if my brother came home from school and for some reason like left his clothes on the floor before he got into the room, it was like, oh my goodness, I've been left behind. That was terrifying. That's not, that's not what's going on here, Okay. Uh, listen, we, we could get into the rapture. I'm not gonna talk about it a lot because it's, it's not in the text and it's not in the Bible. Um, we, 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 that's a whole nother, whole nother thing, a whole nother series. But we gotta be careful about the one being left behind is the villain, right? Because if you look at the same account in Matthew's gospel, the one being left behind is the good one. The one that's taken says we'll be cut into pieces. Okay, so we gotta be careful to be like left behind bad, taken good, in this context, it does seem to be the one left behind is the one that's gonna be in the negative. This isn't about a rapture, right? This is about the return of Christ. That when he comes back in the twinkling of an eye, like a flash of light that no one's gonna mistake, there's no, well, let me figure this out. Whoa, whoa, wait a second. I think I remember someone talking to me about this day. Let me go figure it out first. People, just like in the days of Noah and Lot, will be going about their daily business. There will be no second chances. There's no looking back. The Bible talks about how Jesus is gonna come back like a thief in the night when we least expect it. And so we either make much of Jesus as king now in our midst, or we go about our daily life eating and drinking Marrying, giving in marriage, buying, selling, just doing our thing. Not giving a second thought 
about the creator. What's interesting though, and this is where I wanted to connect it, do you know the last recorded phrase that we have from Jesus? You might think, well, yeah, I was on the cross and he says it is finished, right? He cries out, it's finished. But then we have this book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus that Jesus gives to the apostle John. And the last two verses of our Bible in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20 says, he who testifies to these things, that is Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. I will be back. And then John adds, amen, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come, come now, come soon, come quickly. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people, amen. Jesus said, I will be back. And no one knows when it's gonna happen, so don't be trying to read the books. Don't read like uh, 1994, 94 reasons why Jesus is gonna come back in 1994. Don't read that book, right? It's a stupid book, I think. Uh, no offense to the author. Right, whatever, right? And there's probably a book like that for every year. And there's probably one for next year or when the next Mayan calendar ends or whatever it may be. There's always some catastrophe or blood moon and that means, oh, we don't know. Nobody knows. But it will happen because Jesus said it was going to happen. Jesus said, I will be back. Yes, I'm coming soon. So we had the rapture. Now let's look at the raptor. <laughs> they asked the question, where, Lord, where are we going to see the kingdom? They asked, and he replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Vulture simply means birds of prey. If you've seen Jurassic Park, that's what it means. And that's what this is. Carry on. This is just a, a bird of prey. And so this can be translated a couple different ways. Uh, one could be a raptor. Uh, one could be that. This is actually available on our website if you are interested in, in uh, Jesus holding a little baby raptor. I couldn't find, I, I, there was one that we have floating around the church that says, it was like a thought bubble and it says BRB on it. And that's, that one made more sense in context today. But anyways, that's not one of the options. One of the other options, the one options is that could it be translated eagle, right? And you, and you read it, it's kind of jarring because when you read it, I think the NIV, not the NIV, the, the NASB, the New American Version, um, I think that translates it as eagle. And when you translate it eagle, it, it's kind of weird, right? Because it says, uh, where there is a dead body, there the eagles will gather, right? And, and eagles don't eat dead things, right? They don't need to do that. They're not like vultures, which is why it makes sense that people would translate it vulture, except unless maybe Jesus is getting to another meaning here. Eagle was synonymous with America, no, um, Eagle was synonymous with Rome, all right? And the Roman, the Roman government and the legions and that they would carry these eagles everywhere they went. And so, so is Jesus giving a warning, potentially, right? That, that destruction is coming and those who are left behind, those who wait in their walled cities, those who don't listen and heed to my voice, destruction is coming. Dead bodies are gonna, be, are gonna fall where the eagle comes, all right? Because Jesus, in his day, what does he tell the followers? He's like, right, the, something crazy is gonna happen. I'm gonna be destroyed. I'm gonna be taken away. I'm gonna ascend into heaven. And then after that, destruction, and when that day comes, run to the hills, right? Every other, when you go to the Middle East and you say, right, you have a walled city. People, what do they do? They go into the city. They go into the stronghold. They go into the castle. Jesus says, don't do that. 
run to the hills if you want to survive. And the people that listen to Jesus survive when they run to the hills. And the people who are left behind in the walled city are destroyed by the eagle. Okay, that's one thing. That's one way. It's possible. But I do think that there's something about the vulture that just makes a little bit more sense with the dead bodies, the, the, the flesh, right? They, because these vultures, they eat the dead flesh. And is it possible that Jesus is saying, you wanna know where the kingdom of God is? Right, that's what they're asking. Where is the kingdom of God? And I think Jesus is saying, look to the people who eat my flesh. Look, look to the people who weekly, maybe even daily, time after time, gather together and they eat my flesh. Follow the vultures. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 7 through 11, it says this, but we have this treasure, salvation, death to life, he just says, in jars of clay, great band, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be, be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Lose your life to preserve it so that his life may be revealed in our moral, mortal body. He must increase and we must decrease. All right, that's the gospel application. That's what I've got for us this morning. He must increase, we must decrease. How do we do that? Well, I mean, that's what the entire Bible's about, right? The, the practical steps of how we give Jesus honor and glory, we, we minimize our sin, not minimize how we view it, but we destroy it, we kill our sin, we mortify our flesh, we become less so that he can become more. That in our weakness, he becomes strong. When I was a kid um, growing up in the south side of Chicago at Southside Baptist School, SSBS, um, there was, a, I, I found this, it took a while to find this, but um, there was, a, we had a, uh, what are those things called? Bulletin board, is that what they're called? You know, those things that teachers would decorate. I don't know who did it, it was in my dad's office, but I know my dad, and I know that he never would have done this. Um, just wasn't, it just wasn't like this. But uh, I thought it was very creative. And, and it was this, I remember walking in, uh, he taught band, this was in the big, this big band room, this big thing, it was there for years. <laughs> that he must increase, right? It got bigger and I, I must decrease. And it just was this visual thing that I think that we need to re be reminded of today. That Jesus must be made much of. And that when I go about my daily business and I forget about the creator, when I forget about the Messiah, it's just like Noah, it's just like Lot. I need to make much of Jesus. And I think in a good word that we just read from Corinthians, right? That we carry around the death of Jesus in our bodies. That week after week, we take these elements at Hope Lower Town and we look at them. And again, we don't, I don't believe, and we as a church don't believe that this physically is the body of Christ or his blood. But there is something spiritual, there's something miraculous that happens in this that we, again, it's a personal relationship. Jesus is in my midst. He is in me. He lives in me. And yet, he's in our midst. He also is doing something. It's a personal relationship, but it's not private. And we come forward and we grab these elements that represent the body of Jesus Christ that he says, this is my body, which is 
broken for you. You take and you eat this in remembrance of me. This is my blood, my blood of the new covenant, not of some lamb or some bull. I am the lamb that takes away the sin of the world and my blood will take the wrath of God that every single one of us deserves. Jesus must increase, we must decrease. And we take these elements to remember that Jesus said, it is finished and also I will be back. All I would ask is that you're a follower of Jesus. You don't need to be a member of this church or any church, but if you love King Jesus, if you want to see Jesus be made much of, if you want him to rule and reign on the altar of your heart and your soul, I would love for you to partake of these elements with us. Uh, the worship team's going to come. They're going to play two more songs. And so feel free to grab these elements as you uh, see fit and sit and, and contemplate, reflect, confess, whatever it may be, and pray and worship Jesus who is worthy of honor and praise, and then we will be dismissed. Let me pray, and the worship team will come back up. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are ruling and you are reigning. Thank you for your son who finished the work that we couldn't even begin to start to do. That these stories that Jesus reminds us of in the Old Testament are not about moralism and do better. It is about you ruling and reigning in our hearts and our souls. So would that be true for us now this morning? And as we take these elements to remember the finished work of Christ, that we would make much of him, make much of you, and make less of us. Because when we are weak, you are strong. God, we love you and we praise you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.